Thank you, Alex, for leading worship and, and the songs. It was marvelous. Thank you for the testimonies. Let's turn to uh, Revelation chapter 10, if you would. Your copy of God's Word, let me encourage you to do that. Revelation chapter 10. We'll just pass those plates. Uh, gentlemen, thank you very much for helping. You are familiar, no doubt, with one of the most famous paintings ever done by any artist, uh, The Last Supper by Leonardo da Vinci, classic portrayal of Christ and the Twelve uh, Apostles at the Table. It's interesting about that picture. Many students of art believe that the painting, when it was first created, was somewhat different than the final product a version that we see now. There was initially, it was believed, a uh, exquisite lace border painted on the tablecloth. When, upon completion, da Vinci invited a group of art students to view his masterpiece, they were immensely uh, impressed by the delicate design of that lace work. They kept looking at it, commenting on it, uh, how awesome it was, and all of that. And so, upon seeing their reaction, da Vinci is reported to have uh, taken up his brush, dipped it, made a few long strokes and obliterated it, and then turned to the students and said, now look at the face of Christ. And he felt like that uh, that uh, lace on that tablecloth had detracted from his main point, which was to get across the face of Christ. And that really is our purpose today. As we look at the book of Revelation, it is the revealing of Jesus Christ. And it's easy, I think, as we get into it, to get caught up in the story, the details of the book. It really captures the imagination as we go through but just a reminder to me as well as to you that this is the story about the revealing of Jesus. And tonight we're going to look at some wonderful things. We're going to look at some dreadful things. And they all have to do with the unveiling, with the revealing of Jesus. Things about Jesus we would not know had not the Lord included this book uh, for us to read. And we get to know things about him uh, that uh, we won't find anywhere else. Now, chapter 10 uh, as we have got into chapter 10, was one of those respites for John. We see that a break, if you will, as we've gone through uh, the unfolding of these things which are future. Uh, we've, t- we've talked about this book of Revelation broken up into things that were, things that are, and things that are still future. The book gives its own outline, so we just use that. We're in the section of the book that is still future. And as we've gone through this section, as we've left the churches behind, We've seen little respites from time to time for John, a break for him, if you will, as he's just overwhelmed with all these things. The Lord will put a break uh, there and just give him some good news, some encouragement. And uh, really, chapter 10 is the beginning of almost two chapters between the sixth and the seventh trumpet, uh, just like we had a break between the sixth and seventh seal. God gives him another another little vision of the good part. And we saw at the beginning of chapter 10 that John sees another angel, And uh, we can just read that, if you would. Let's pick up chapter 10, verse 1. We'll just set the stage for what we're going to look at tonight as it all kind of uh, just moves together. It says, I saw another strong angel. We looked at that, uh, that that's not Jesus because it uses the word another of the same kind. So it's a mighty angel. It's not Jesus himself, even though he's beautiful. Uh, It is not uh, Christ. It clothed with a cloud, and the rainbow was upon his head, and his face was like the sun, and his feet like pillars of fire. And he had in his hand a little book which was open. And we see that he has a scroll. And he takes this uh, position of a conqueror. He has one la- uh, foot on the sea, one foot on the land. He has this, this title deed to the earth in his hand. He cries out uh, to the Lord for his next step. And we see the Lord answers back to him. And the Lord uh, John is able to understand what is being said. And uh, then the Lord clearly tells John not to write these things down, but to seal them up. So what was told to John, he's told to keep to himself. And then we see in verse 5, chapter 10, uh, the angel lifts up his hand and he swears an oath 
and it's an oath guaranteed by God. And we saw to our relief that after we've gone through this section of Revelation that uh, it guarantees there's, uh, all things are going to come to completion. There won't be any more delay and that uh, the complete mystery will be revealed. And so we saw that last time that we're looking forward now as we see, as John gets to these section, as we get to this time of the tribulation period, that we are coming towards the end and that the Lord guarantees he's the one who guarantees there's not going to be any more delay. Everything is going to be wrapped up. And we look at verse 8. And John sees the scroll, that's the title deed to the earth, the angel's holding it. God tells him to take it and put it in his mouth to eat it and swallow it. We saw some parallel passages of those uh, commands, and we kind of broke that down a little bit. Verse 10 says, And so I took the little book out of the angel's hand, and it says, And I ate it, and in my mouth it was sweet as honey, and when I had eaten it, my stomach was made bitter. And we saw that. He means, you know, we kind of broke that apart as we looked at Scripture, comparing Scripture with Scripture. Really, he sees the coming of Jesus Christ and all his glory, that ingesting uh, that little book, all of his glory of Christ coming. It has a sweet taste, and it does to us as well, doesn't it? When we read those passages, we see that Christ is going to come. There's not going to be any more delay. He's going to set up his kingdom and power, and he deserves that. The earth belongs to him. We're his handiwork. He deserves our praise and glory. He deserves the respect that he is due. That has a sweet uh, sense to it, but we also have a bitter taste, right? Because... We understand when he comes in glory, when he comes in power, it's going to mean devastation, isn't it? It's going to mean eternal damnation for those who refuse him as their Lord. And so there's the sweet and bitter sense of the word always as we take it in and as we give it out. And the truth of God are bitter, are pleasant to the taste, but many times are bitter when they're digested because they speak of judgment and they speak on a rebellious world. Many times, just like what John just got through saying out of Second Kings, right? That it's sweet that the Lord has to be obeyed, that Elijah was giving that command. Uh, you know what, you're going to be able to do these things. The guy doubts and uh, immediately is uh, told that he won't live to see the next day. And so we see that uh, there's some sweetness to God's word. There's also some judgment there. And so there's that joy, sorrow, uh, you know, thing of knowing the word of God, of, of giving it out. And it's always the same. Those who give out God's message internalize that message first. And that message is sweet and sometimes it's bitter to give out. And then you work through all that sweetness, you work through that bitterness, and that's what John did, and we do that as well. And really the weighty matters of the word that, uh, that God addresses, and the angel then says in verse 11 of chapter 10, And then they said to me, and they said to me, You must prophesy again concerning many peoples and nations and tongues and kings. And so we just said that's, that's you know, John has to weigh through all, you know, sift through all of that, work through all those emotions, and then he's going to come back and he's going to prophesy. And even that by itself in some small way really points towards uh, a pre-trib rapture because John is being exposed to all these things. Then he's told to go back now and prophesy and tell them. And so what's implied then, I guess, would be so that they can just go through it anyway. No, they can, go, they can avoid this wrath of God poured out on the world uh, because John is going to tell them about it and uh, warn them so that they can be saved and be delivered. So, Now, before that seventh trumpet sounds, there's another glimpse of God's grace in chapter 11. This is an awesome chapter in the Bible. Let's look there if you would. And uh, we are allowed by the Lord to orientate ourselves time-wise inside the seven years. A lot of times the breaks that we see uh, are times where we get to see some things filled in, and this is one of those times. And uh, we're introduced to two of the most interesting people in the Bible. Look at verse 1 of chapter 11, if you would. Then there was given me a measuring uh, rod like a staff. And someone said, uh, get up and measure the temple of God. We'll go ahead and catch up with me, Will, if you would. 
Are we frozen up back there, John, or can it go on? We are. Okay. Very good. Then there was given me a measuring rod like a staff. Someone said, get up, measure the temple of God. That's the holy place, the holy of holies, and the altar and those who worship in it. Now, stop right there. Now, remember, John has seen the destruction in Jerusalem, okay? So, kind of place John here. He's a little bit less than 20 years out after the destruction of the, tr- uh, the temple in Jerusalem. So, John's seen all of that. And uh, here he's told to measure the temple. He's given a measuring rod to measure it. Same language we see in Zechariah chapter 2 and verses 1 through 5. You can kind of make a note there in your Bible if you want. Cross-reference that very same thing. Zechariah 2, 1 through 5, Ezekiel 40. 3 through 5 tells uh, those individuals to do the same thing, to measure the temple. And John, it really, I think two reasons there, or maybe three, uh, two reasons for sure I think that John is told to measure the temple. First of all, John's going to be encouraged, isn't he? John saw the destruction of Herod's temple, and so now he's here in the twilight years of his life, and he sees the, no worship going on in Jerusalem, everything was destroyed. And here he's told, listen, in this time period, there will be another temple. Go ahead and measure it. And secondly... We'll know, okay? We'll know what to look for, won't we? Uh, those things are going to take place during the tribulation period. We're going to know that in, in Jerusalem, there's going to be a temple at that time, all right? So, uh, turn, if you will, hold your, hand, hold your uh, finger right there. Turn to Daniel chapter 9, verse 27, if you would. We'll know what to look for. Uh, John's going to be encouraged that there is, in the tribulation period, a temple there. Turn to Daniel chapter 9, verse 27. I won't make you turn too many places tonight, but this is a good cross-reference. Daniel 9, 27. As we're speaking about the Antichrist here, and we've referenced this a few times, that he is the Antichrist here at the first part of this passage, Daniel 9:27, and he will make a firm covenant with the many for one week, but in the middle of the week he will put a stop to sacrifice and grain offering. So where's that taking place? In the temple, right? Obviously, this is speaking of the same thing going on, same time period. And on the wing of the abominations will come one who makes desolate, even until a complete destruction uh, even to, until a complete destruction, one that is decreed is poured out on the one who makes desolate. Just basically this. There's going to be a temple, obviously, and there wouldn't be sacrifice going on here as he's speaking of it. Sacrifice is occurring there. Someone's going to come, specifically speaking here of the Antichrist, and he's going to stop that sacrifice, that green offering going on. He's going to, he's going to uh, do some abominations right there in the temple himself, place himself on the throne, and he's going to do all that until he is destroyed. So basically speaking of the same time, and a temple at the same time period. All right, turn back to Revelation if you would, and I'll give you a few more on the screen. You can copy down in your Bible. Matthew chapter 24, verse 15. uh, Jesus here is warning now, and he says, Therefore, when you see the abomination of desolation, which was spoken of through Daniel the prophet, standing in the holy place, let the reader understand. Now, I'll pause right there just to say, here's Jesus, okay? Now, we know that in Daniel, we looked at the abomination that would cause desolation, and Antiochus Epiphanes was the near fulfillment of that, right? But now we've passed that point in history, haven't we? Jesus is speaking now, and he's speaking of a further fulfillment, okay? So he's looking further on. He sees the temple there uh, in the tribulation period and says, you will see this as well. This is going to happen in the tribulation time. Second Thessalonians 2.4, as he speaks of the, uh, the Antichrist who opposes and exalts himself above every so-called God or object of worship so that he takes this, his seat in the temple of God displaying himself as being God. And so, still looking to another future fulfillment, the Antichrist himself placing himself there uh, to be worshipped. Okay? So, speaking of the same time period, kind of give you an orientation so that you know 
what they're talking about and when they're talking about it. All right? Now look back at verse 2 of chapter 11 of Revelation. Okay? Uh, verse 1 says, Then he was given a measuring rod like a staff. Someone said, Get up, measure the temple of God and the altar and those who worship in it. Verse 2, Leave out, he says, the court which is outside the temple. Do not measure it, for it has been given to the nations. And they will tread underfoot the holy city for 42 months. Now, the outside court of the temple of Herod was separated from the inner court by a wall. We can only imagine that this will be somewhat similar. Gentiles could not enter the inner court unless they wished to be killed, but they could come and worship in the court of the Gentiles. And John is told not to measure that court. All right? So, I said there, was two, there were two reasons why uh, John was told to measure. First of all, to encourage John. Secondly, to tell us that there's going to be a temple during the tribulation period. This is kind of the third reason, maybe if you look at it, um, the third reason John's told to measure so we can understand God's rejected the unbelieving Gentiles during that time. All right? He's rejected all of that uh, pseudo-worship, which is not worship at all. And uh, Jesus tells John not to measure it. So it's kind of the third reason, kind of a, a backdoor reason for John to measure. So about 42 months, back in verse 2, it says this. It says, leave out the court which is in the outside, on the outs- outside the temple. Do not measure it, for it has been given to the nations in this second part. And they will tread underfoot the holy city for 42 months. All right? Uh, that's uh, the 42 months, the second half of the tribulation period. Okay? So... Jews are going to be sacrificing in the rebuilt tribulation temple for the first three and a half years. And we can understand that these judgments then that we have been studying have been occurring during that time. Okay? So basically, you're just seeing these. These are time markers for us. The Lord gives us these. They're nice as we read through the, the scriptures. The Lord gives us some time markers and we can say, okay, he's got to be speaking of X. Okay? So he's speaking of the first three and a half years of the tribulation because obviously... The second three and a half years, the Gentiles are going to be trampling all over the court and we're not going to even, we're not going to use it, okay? So sacrificing in the temple is ended, right? We saw that out of Daniel. Second half of the tribulation, there's going to be no sacrifice going on there. The Antichrist is going to stop all of that. And so we see that uh, going out. Like verse 3 now, if you would. So we understand all the judgments now, obviously, that we've looked for so far. All the seal judgments and these trumpet judgments have been occurring during that first three and a half year period. Now look at verse 3. And I will grant authority uh, to my two witnesses. Now this is the first time we get to hear about these guys. They kind of pop up right here on the radar as we're going through here. And uh, I've told you they're my two favorite guys in all the scriptures. They will prophesy for 1260 days clothed in sackcloth. Now these are two guys mentioned here. They're very intriguing guys. And we're going to talk about them in a moment. But the question has always been, since the book was written, which 1260 days? Okay, is it the first 1260 days or is it the second? First half of the tribulation or the second? All right, there's good reasons for both. I'm going to go with the first half of the tribulation. I'm going to give you why I would say that it lands there. And once again, I'm just going to kind of go through the passage and uh, the simple, straightforward reading of the passage and the time sequence we have measured off here for us kind of lends it to be the first half of the tribulation period. Okay, first of all, John is filled in here about temple sacrifice. Okay. He's told what's going on. Jesus looks back then, so to speak, for John at that point, right? He's looking back and saying, look, the temple sacrifice is going on there. And Jesus says, look, uh, there's a temple there. And, of course, we know that they are worshiping an unbelief there, right? They're worshiping a God whose perfect lamb has already been slain. Uh, they've made a bargain uh, with the Antichrist to ensure their safety. And that's not unusual, is it? Uh, I was just reading uh, just the other day, Second Chronicles, uh, Jehoshaphat, right? And he, he, uh, he makes a bargain, doesn't he? And this is a... This is a common theme in Israel, right? Instead of looking to God to deliver them from their enemies, what have they done historically all along, all the record the Lord's given for us 
has always been, instead of looking to the Lord consistently to be their deliverer, even on the back of a huge deliverance from Sennacherib, they turn right back around and say, okay, now let's, let's give all the things out of the temple. We'll buy some protection from somebody. Well, that's exactly what's going to go on in the first three and a half years of the tribulation. The Jews are looking to someone else uh, to be their deliverer. They're looking to this person, the Antichrist, as the one who could broker peace for them for this first half of this time period. So we're looking back. So that's why it makes me think that the first 1260 days for these two guys are the ones we're talking about. Uh, secondly, according to Daniel 9.27, the Antichrist is going to break his covenant with the Jewish people and he's going to betray them, alluded to earlier, 2 Thessalonians 2.4. We just looked at that. And that coincides well with the two witnesses' death because we're going to see in a moment that they're going to be killed. So it would follow that as he breaks all this uh, covenant with the Jews and he, he ends the temple sacrifice and starts a huge persecution, that uh, their death lands very nicely at that time period. Thirdly, uh, John is told that the Gentiles are going to trample the holy people for 42 months. Okay, so obviously uh, at that point where they are killed, that fits nicely with the next 42 months of just being trampled uh, by unbelieving Gentiles. Uh, number four, God set aside 144,000 witnesses to see the Jewish people and everyone who believe come to him, right? And we looked at that section of scripture already. And these two guys fit very well inside uh, the time period of the ministry of the 144,000. And I think he's going to use these two guys as well to see people come to faith. And so I think that fits in there nicely. And then their death really coincides with the beginning of the end. The severe persecution of the Jewish people uh, whom God delivers and uh, severe persecution of the born-again Gentiles who will be delivered into heaven. Okay? Uh, because he's going to make war. The Antichrist is going to make war against their offspring. And we saw that earlier. Those who are believers. Okay, so I've just given you a few reasons why, you can jot those down, why these two witnesses probably come during the first half. Now look at, look at verse 4, chapter 11, if you would. I'll grant my authority, verse 3, to my two witnesses. They will prophesy for 1260 days, clothed in sackcloth. These are the two olive trees, the two lampstands that stand before the Lord of the earth. Now, just stop right there. We're not really positive exactly who they are. Uh, certainly they would... Uh, Moses and Elijah would certainly be candidates anyway. Uh, they may be those guys, but these guys are great. Uh, they have a couple things that uh, make us think about Moses and Elijah. We'll put them on the screen. Uh, first of all, they're reminiscent of the works of Elijah and Moses as prophets. Both those guys were busy doing many of the things that these guys will be able to do. Uh, secondly, Elijah was taken in a whirlwind, so he didn't die. Uh, Moses' bones were uh, hidden, of course, and we know that from the Word of God, probably so the uh, Jewish people wouldn't worship them or set up a huge shrine over them. But we know that Moses' bones were hidden. Both were there at the transfiguration of Christ, uh, came and appeared uh, while Christ was on earth and were seen by some of his disciples. Uh, both were allowed supernatural means to bring repentance to people. And so that is something, uh, a way that the Lord had used them already. They had power to strike the earth with plagues and keep it from raining. And uh, not the least of which Jewish tradition has always expected that Moses and Elijah would come. All right, so there's a couple of reasons why people think perhaps it's Moses and Elijah. They're going to be two uh, awesome guys regardless of who they are. Deuteronomy 18, uh, 15, of course. Speaking of Joshua and the near fulfillment, but it, it tends to have a sense that someone else will come. Uh, the Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among you. This is uh, Moses at the end of his time period uh, with the Jews. He's getting ready to, he knows he's going to his death. He doesn't get to see the promised land. And so he encourages them. He says, uh, from your countrymen, you shall listen to him. 
Uh, this is according to all that you've asked by the Lord your God in Horeb on the day of the assembly, saying, Let me not hear again the voice of the Lord my God. Let me not see this great fire any more, or I will die. And the Lord said to me, They've spoken well. I'll raise up a prophet from among their countrymen like you. I'll put my words in his mouth, and he shall speak of to them all I command. Of course, Joshua is near fulfillment, but speaking of uh, someone coming after Moses, but even more specifically for Elijah, which tends to be the common one amongst everyone as they look at it, uh, Malachi 4, verse 5, Behold, I'm going to send you Elijah the prophet before the coming of the great and terrible day of the Lord. He will restore the hearts of the fathers to their children and the hearts of the children to their fathers so that he, I will not come and smite the land with a curse. And so, obviously, the Jews have always looked, based on that verse and others, and they've looked for Elijah to come. In fact, in John chapter 1, verse 20, what did they ask him? Uh, and he confessed and did not deny, but confessed, I am not the Christ. I'm talking to John. And then they asked him, what? What then? Are you Elijah, right? Because they're looking for Elijah. And they said, hey, Elijah's got to come before the Christ is going to come. But as we look through the Old Testament, the first and second advents of Christ are not clearly separated for us as they are now, right? The New Testament has helped us understand those separations better. Uh, but for, as they were looking, they're saying, hey, Elijah's got to come. Are you Elijah? And he said, I'm not he. Are you the prophet? He answered, no. And so obviously they're asking for whom? Asking for more. Are you Moses? You know, are you, have you come back here to, I mean, we know we're supposed to be looking for them, right? And then they said to them, who are you so that we may give an answer to those who sent us? What do you say about yourself? And so obviously in their minds, they're looking for uh, these two prophets to return. Revelation tells us these two guys are going to come. And so it's fun to speculate perhaps who they may be. But watch this. The world's going to hate them. They're going to hate these guys. A new age society is going to really hate them. Isn't that great? I mean, they're just going to be ticked. People who, you know, explain the rapture away by saying, you know, hey, great, we're now all those people who are really holding us back from, re, you know, really getting to where we really need to be, you know, all those uh, moral people and all of that, you know, all those voters who wouldn't let anybody in that uh, was liberal and all, all that stuff, you know, we got rid of all those guys, right? They're no longer around, you know, those holier than thou, you know, old-fashioned Jesus freaks, they're all gone, all right? Tribulation's here, but all the, all the weirdos are gone, right? All the, the church has been raptured, they're glad. And uh, these people, then they're going to see these two guys, and that's going to really rain on their parade, right? Isn't that great? They're going to be totally bummed about this. And uh, they are going to preach Jesus Christ, but let's read verse 5, Revelation 11. And if anyone wants to harm them, fire flows out of their mouth and devours their, devours their enemies. Don't you love that? <laughs> if anyone wants to harm them, he must be killed in this way. You know, I, I guess you know, in, the, in the age that we've lived in, where we, you know, we... Uh, the world remembers a baby in a manger, Christ, and then they remember Christ on the cross. And they don't remember Christ coming in power, and, and the gospel really has been trampled over and, and, uh, and put down and not really uh, taken uh, as authoritative. God doesn't have the respect that he certainly deserves. It's just kind of cool that during this period of time, and there's going to be a couple of guys that are going to be able to say whatever they want, and nobody's going to be able to harm them. And believe me, I'm sure that they're going to try. Wouldn't you, wouldn't you agree? I mean, these guys, we've got rid of everybody else. Let's get rid of these guys. If anybody wants to harm them, uh, he must be killed in this way. You know, just breathing and uh, incinerating breath. Gone, right? I like to eat jalapenos, really hot stuff. I'm from Arizona, and sometimes I think my breath's like that. I'm kind of careful about making sure I get a, you know, Eclipse gum or something in my mouth after I've had. But these guys really will have breath, and this breath will, dis will incinerate those who want to uh, destroy them. Wouldn't that be fun? You know, you're being antagonized. Wouldn't you like to have that power right now? You're being antagonized, right? Persecuted. Wouldn't you like to see some of the, you know, some of the leavers in North Vietnam, right? 
in China, places like that where they're really persecuting the believers and they're coming in, they're going to, you know, they're getting ready to harm them, then fire comes out of their mouth, you know, ash pile. Yeah. I just think, I don't know, maybe that doesn't appeal to you. I, that appeals to me. I, I'm glad that, I'm glad this happens, all right? I'm glad. I'm glad the Lord gets the respect. I'm glad, you know, they have the authority uh, to do it. And I think it's a neat part of the tribulation time. Look at verse 6. And uh, it says, these have power to shut up the sky. So not only do they have incinerating breath, uh, they have power to shut up the sky so that rain will not fall during the days of their prophesying. And they have power over the waters uh, to turn them into blood and to strike the earth with every plague as often as they desire. So they have some, they have some leeway, do they not? Uh, to do some things to get people to listen. So a couple of things they can do. First of all, they can control the weather, right? The incinerating breath, of course, uh, their, main, uh, their main cool part that they can do. They can control the weather. And you know what? You bet these guys are going to be on the news each night, you know? Uh, you know, you, next we have our two witnesses report. You can kind of just see CNN, you know, our two witnesses report. You know, everywhere they've gone, the rivers turn to blood. They don't rain. We've got to do something about these guys. But every time we try, you know, some footage of soldiers getting incinerated and all that stuff. You kind of, kind of see that on the news. People are going to hate these guys. So they can uh, incinerating breath, control the weather. They can turn the remaining two-thirds of water into blood if they want to because we've already seen a plague. Uh, we've already seen a... Uh, uh, a trumpet that has caused that to happen. They can strike the earth with plagues anytime they want, and we've got some examples of that from uh, the scriptures. Blood, frogs, lice, flies, right? Death of the cattle, you know, boils, hails, locusts, darkness, death. We, we have those ten just from Egypt, and so obviously Elijah did a number of, of those, uh, dried up the water and, and didn't let it rain and all those things, so they can do that. And finally, you know what happens? Look at verse 7 of these two guys. Verse 7. When they finish their testimony, so they've got a job to do, the beast that comes up out of the abyss will make war with them and overcome them and kill them. And so the beast, it says, comes right out of the pit and kills them. The beast himself, that's the Antichrist, uh, referred to more than 30 times that way. Okay, so that's not an isolated way to refer to the Antichrist. But the beast is, uh, is the Antichrist. He's referred to that many times. The beast comes right out of the pit and kills them. It also indicates for us, doesn't it, where he, the Antichrist receives his power, right? And so we have an understanding a little bit there. We're going to find out later that the Antichrist is actually indwelt by Satan, and uh, that is kind of foreshadowed here. And that's not unusual, is it? Scripture tells us who else was indwelt by Satan. Do you remember? Judas. That's exactly what it says, right? Jesus dipped the bread and gave it to him, and at that point, what's it say? Judas was indwelt by Satan, and he got up and left. And the other disciples are clueless, right? They're like, oh, I think he's going to get something for the master, right? And so this is not unusual. And, of course, at that pivotal point in history where Satan thinks he's going to strike the blow that's going to end all of redemption for all mankind, whereas the blow is actually struck against him, right? But here again, at this pivotal time, we see these two witnesses. They are going to be killed by the beast. He is empowered by Satan himself. And he overcomes him and he kills him. And uh, do you know where they are when they die? Jerusalem. Great city, it says, spiritually called Sodom and Egypt. Look at verse 8. And their dead bodies will lie in the street of the great city, which mystically is called Sodom and Egypt. And here, here it clarifies for us, okay? Where also their Lord was, what? Crucified. Right? So they're murdered in Jerusalem. That's appropriate, isn't it? Jerusalem that killed the prophets. Uh, killed two more. And that's where they die. Can you imagine what the news will say? Just like when World War II ended or President Kennedy was shot, or, you know, big, black, bold print, finally, they're dead, right? We're going to see later that um, they got a party. 
you have a big party when the two witnesses die. You know, send a here, you know, dead witnesses day gift or something uh, to people. It's going to be a big party. But here we are, right towards the end of the first three and a half years. The world is at approximately the middle of the tribulation time, poised really on the brink of the great, Scripture calls it, the great and awful day of the Lord, the great tribulation. And the two witnesses have been killed, and uh, we are out of time. But the story is nowhere near over. All right, so be back next week. We'll take a look at it again. If you thought the first part was good, just wait till the end of this story. Okay, I think it's an appropriate place to stop, right? It's kind of like your favorite show on TV. You're going to come back if they, if they cut it off right before the, the uh, ending. All right, so we'll do that. But then we'll pick up in verse 9 next week. All right, let's, uh, let's be dismissed in a word of prayer as uh, we have enjoyed our time together tonight. Lord, we thank you so much for the fellowship of the saints. We're grateful that you've set it up this way, that uh, you've, uh, your son came, set up the church so that we would meet, so that we would encourage one another with testimony, with scripture, that we would sing, that we would read your word and give it the authority it's due. So Lord, we just really desire to be a church like that and do the things that you told us to do and uh, what uh, true believers have done all along as we waited on your son's return. Thank you for the encouragement that we can kind of put together these things, as Dr. Olson prayed earlier, that you give us your wisdom from your Holy Spirit to understand, really, the clear words that you've given us. And you've told us that we're blessed when we read it and hear it and do it. Uh, the words written in this book, the only book that has that kind of blessing, and so we're blessed already because of reading and hearing. And then, Lord, I pray that we'll be the doing, living like we understand the story ends, to be motivated to share, to as John was given the mandate to teach and prophesy again of these things. Lord, help us to be about that. Help us to be motivated to witness because we know what happens here and the dreadful things that come about on those who turn away and will not acknowledge you as their Lord. So Lord, give us the grace to give out a clear gospel. Repentance toward you. Faith toward Christ. Help it to be motivated by hearts that desire to see some come, some saved. And thank you for those who were faithful to witness to us. And we give you praise today. And all God's people said, Amen.